Hello, and welcome to the Bible Initiative Podcast. My name is Tim Fritzen. I'm the lead pastor at Liberty Christian Fellowship, and this is our third supplemental podcast, one we're calling Understanding Job. If you haven't yet, uh, before you continue listening to this podcast, I want to encourage you to go ahead and do the first reading in this week's reading plan, which is Job 1 through chapter 2, verse 10. Before we get started here, you can pause this now and do that, and then pick it back up in just a second. Our goal in this podcast is going to be to step back and get a big picture view of the book of Job. Typically in a sermon or a teaching, I walk through a smaller passage of scripture verse by verse, which is great and is the most comfortable way that I like to teach, but sometimes we can gain a lot by stepping back and getting a big picture view of a larger portion of scripture. That's what we're going to try to do today, to zoom out and see the big picture of Job so that as you do your reading this week, you can see the details more clearly for yourself. So, some general context about the book of Job. Job isn't actually one of the historical books of the Old Testament. That's what our Bible initiative reading plan is is following in general, the, the narrative portion of the Old Testament. Instead, Job comes from what is known as the wisdom literature of the Bible. The other wisdom books in the Bible are Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon or Song of Psalms. Job is all about wisdom and suffering. More specifically, it's about the Lord's wisdom in the midst of our human suffering. The dating of the book of Job is difficult, and that's the reason we've decided to insert it into this spot in our reading plan. Before we begin to follow the particular history of God's chosen people, the Israelites, through the Old Testament, we wanted to take a look at the book of Job. In general, as I mentioned before, Job deals with the issue of suffering. There isn't a person or household in the history of the world that hasn't experienced the pain of suffering and asked some really hard questions about it. Why does suffering exist? Where is God in the midst of suffering? Why do bad things happen to seemingly good people? And if God truly loved us, wouldn't he protect us or insulate us from suffering? All of these are really good questions. Uh, They're very challenging. And the book of Job doesn't explicitly answer all of them, but instead takes a step backwards and answers a more foundational question. You see, the big takeaway from the book of Job is this. Even in the face of our most painful suffering, we can trust the goodness, the sovereignty, the wisdom, and the love of God. I think it'll be most helpful for understanding uh, the big picture of Job if we walk through the setup or the outline of how the book works. There are seven characters in the book of Job. In order of appearance, they are Job, God, Satan, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Elihu. The book begins with a prologue. That's the first reading in this week's reading plan. Job chapter 1 through Job 2 verse 10. And in that prologue, we get a description of Job. We see that he's blameless and upright. Similar to what we talked about with Noah during the flood week, this doesn't mean that Job was sinless and perfect, but that he had a heart that longed for the Lord, that longed to be obedient and to follow him. He was also incredibly wealthy. The book talks about his wealth in terms of relational wealth. He had children and a wife that he loved deeply, and also his material wealth. We're told of uh, that he's got large herds of sheep and camels and donkeys and oxen, and that he's got a number of servants. We're even told that he's one of the greatest of the people of the East. What comes next in the prologue is a conversation between Satan and God, in which God allows Satan to test the faith of Job. 
The word Satan literally means something close to the adversary. You see, Satan believes that Job is only faithful to the Lord because God has blessed him abundantly. And God knows otherwise. And so he's willing to allow Satan to take away Job's possessions and family and even his health in order to prove it. It almost reminds me of a scene from the movie The Grinch. Uh, if you're familiar with The Grinch, there's a, a portion of the story, the cartoon, where The Grinch is overlooking Whoville and he makes the decision that he's going to steal all of their presents and decorations and that by doing so, they would have no joy at Christmas. Instead, what the Grinch finds out is that Christmas comes with all of its joy, even when those things are taken away. At the end of uh, the cartoon, at the end of the story, the Who's come out and they sing in the middle of their town despite the Grinch's attempts to steal Christmas. A similar thing plays out in the life of Job. Satan believes that if Job's blessings and provisions were taken away from him, he would no longer have reason to worship the Lord, and yet the opposite happens. This conversation between God and Satan is strange to read, but it serves to teach us an interesting point. The takeaway is this. Evil exists in the world, but it's not as some sort of dueling power that's fighting with the power of God for supremacy on the earth. God is the only thing that is eternal, and evil led by Satan is temporal. It came into the world at a certain point, and it will cease to exist in the world at a certain point. During that time, during the, the period where evil exists, like today, Satan wants to destroy humanity. He doesn't merely want to tempt us. He doesn't want us to possibly sin. He wants to destroy us. We saw that in Genesis chapter 2 with Adam and Eve, and death comes into the world. We saw it in Genesis chapter 4 with Cain, and, and God gives Cain a warning that sin is crouching at his door and its desire is for him, to rule over him. And here it is, we see it again. Satan wants to destroy Job. But God is the ultimate authority. He's the ultimate power in the universe. Humanity has a power, a power to choose and a power to act. Satan has a power that's greater than humanity's, but less than God's. He's got the power to tempt and to lead us into sin. God, on the other hand, is the ultimate power. He has no rival. He has no equal. He sets the parameters by which history will advance and by which evil can operate. God sets the boundaries of all things, and that includes evil. And it's difficult to fully understand. Much like Job, we can't see it. Job has no understanding of this conversation between Satan and God. He has no understanding of God setting the parameters by which Satan can tempt and can inflict pain upon Job. But the prologue of this book and this look into this heavenly conversation confirms that God is sovereign, fully sovereign over all of his creation. Beginning in verse 11 of chapter 2, we're introduced to the next three characters in the book of Job. There are three of Job's friends who arrive in the midst of his suffering, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. The text tells us that for a week they just sit with Job, weeping with him in his suffering and saying nothing at all. And before anyone speaks, chapter 3 records for us a lament from Job in which he said, Why did I not die at birth, come out of the womb and expire? For then I would have laid down and been quiet. I would have slept and been at rest. That's Job 3, verses 11 and 13. Job's suffering is very real, so much so that he laments over his very birth and existence. And what follows Job's lament are three cycles of conversation that all function in a very similar manner. 
one of Job's friends will speak, Eliphaz typically first, and then Job replies. Then Bildad will speak, and Job replies. And then Zophar speaks, and Job replies. That cycle happens in full two times. The first cycle is contained in Job 4 through chapter 14, and the second cycle is in Job 15 through chapter 21. The third cycle only contains speeches by Eliphaz and Bildad, as well as Job's replies. You can find that in chapters 22 to 26. If we were to summarize the main idea behind all of the monologues of Job's friends, we would call it retribution theology. That is, that God gives Job, one for one, exactly what his actions deserve. Here's an example of that. Bildad, in Job 8, verses 4 to 6, says, If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hands of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. The overall theme of their words is something like, wow, Job, this suffering is bad. You must have sinned something horrible to have brought this on yourself. And if you would do something really righteous, then things would go back to normal. But what Job understands is that no one could possibly be fully righteous before God. He also understands that very often the wicked, whom he references frequently, prosper while the righteous suffer. What we understand, because we got to read the prologue to the book, is that Job's suffering has nothing to do with his sin. In fact, what we saw in the first and second chapter is that Job's suffering is something of the exact opposite. His suffering has come about because of his blamelessness and his righteousness. Following those conversations between Job and his three friends, we're introduced to the final character of the book of Job. His name is Elihu. He shows up in chapters 32 to 37, and it kind of feels like he just appears out of nowhere. But he tells us that he's been there for quite some time and has remained silent because he's young. He gives a speech throughout those six chapters in which he rebukes Job's friends. He actually rebukes Job. He defends God's just nature and then declares God's greatness. And then finally, at the high point of the book, the Lord shows up and begins to speak. That happens in chapters 38 to 41. That's what Job has wanted all along, an audience with God, but it goes nothing like he had planned. Instead of proudly defending himself before the Lord, he's left in awe as God lays out the primary truth of the book of Job. God shows up and says, Job, my ways are much higher than yours. My perspective is much greater than yours, and I'm inviting you to trust me in my wisdom, even in the midst of your pain. Listen to the opening portion of what God says in Job chapter 38. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst forth from the womb, which I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no further, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. God arrives and he begins to speak, but he answers none of Job's questions, nor does Job ever even ask them. Instead, God speaks and displays for Job and for us the, ba- the vast difference between his infinite, all-knowing nature and our finite, limited perspective and knowledge. As a side note here, I would encourage you sometime uh, to carve out a few hours one afternoon and read the entirety of the book of Job in one setting. 
Here's why. When God finally shows up and begins to speak in chapter 38, it is literally breathtaking. Up to that point, the book has been full of Job and his friends talking about God, appealing to talk to God, and trying to describe the reality of God and who he is. And then God arrives, and he does the talking for himself. And it's amazing to read. In a very small way, I think it alludes to what we'll experience when we face him at judgment. He'll be so much greater than anything we've thought or heard or seen that we're left breathless and in complete awe. When you read the book of Job from beginning to end, and then he shows up and speaks in chapter 38, that's exactly what you're left with. And it gives us insight into what Job was left with. The final portion of the book of Job is an epilogue in chapter 42. That begins with a confession and a statement of repentance from Job. Having seen the Lord and heard him speak, Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Therefore, I have uttered things that I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes." From there, the book ends with the restoration of Job's possessions and property, as well as the joy of his receiving uh, or having children in the same number as he had before. And that's the large structure of the book of Job, a prologue, cycles of conversations with his friends, the emergence of Elihu, the speaking of the Lord, and then an epilogue that ties everything back together. So what do we learn from Job? I think we learn three things from the book of Job. The first is that we will suffer. The second is that we might understand. And the third is that we can always trust. So number one, we will suffer. We live in a broken world. We are bound to be impacted by the reality of pain and hurt and suffering at some point. And many times that suffering does come about as a result of our own sin. But sometimes it arrives at our door through no fault of our own. In either case, we should never minimize the pain we experience in our suffering. Like Job's lament in chapter 3, we can take our honest feelings to God and express them before him. We see this in Job. We also see it throughout the book of Psalms. We don't do ourselves any short-term or long-term good by pretending our pain isn't real in the midst of our suffering. We don't do those around us any good by trying to gloss over the reality of their pain and their suffering. We will suffer. It isn't a matter of if, but of when. And in the midst of our suffering, we might understand. Often in the midst of our suffering, there isn't much hope for completely understanding why we're going through what we're going through. Sometimes, years after our suffering, we get a small glimpse into the reason for our pain. It is good and gracious when God gives us those moments. They often come in the form of future opportunities to minister to others who are experiencing similar suffering or similar pain to what we experienced in the past. Sometimes we're able to look back and see the way God has molded us more fully into the image of Jesus through our life's trials. At other times, though, this kind of understanding never comes. We can thank God for the moments when we do get a glimpse into the reason or the purpose for our suffering, but we shouldn't live as if he owes them to us. That's one of the primary issues with Job. He feels like God owes him an explanation, but that isn't the case because what God wants to say is that we can always trust. We can always trust that God will work together the events of our life in such a way as to display his glory in and through us as we look to and trust in him. That leads to a a fair question. What about the times when evil breaks in and something happens to us that seems so unthinkable and so unspeakable that no one should have to deal with it? 
in those moments, even in the middle of the pain and the hurt, we can trust that God can take something dark and broken and work through it for our and his ultimate good. A true worship of God should not depend on the reality of our circumstances, but on the reality of God's character. We don't trust God because we're able to completely figure out everything and answer all the hard questions. We trust God because we know his character and can rest in his goodness, even if we can't see it in the moment. Throughout the Bible initiative, what we want to do is take every passage of Scripture, every part of the Bible that we may be reading in, and relate it to Jesus and the gospel. When it comes to suffering and it comes to the book of Job, we see a very clear picture of Jesus who can sympathize with us in our suffering. Jesus has suffered, and he can identify with us in the midst of our pain. We don't have a Savior who knows nothing of our struggles, but one who has entered into them himself. He suffered through no fault of his own, and yet he trusted God all the while. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, but was without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in times of need. We can look to him as our Savior who sympathizes with our suffering, but also as one who models how to handle it. We can look at Jesus in the midst of our suffering and see his suffering and say in our heart, you too. And yet at the same time, we can look at the way Jesus trusted in God in the midst of his suffering on the cross and have a longing in our heart that says, me too. We can see Jesus as sympathizing with our suffering and modeling how to handle our suffering. Our prayer should be that we would trust the Lord and his wisdom, lean on Jesus as a sympathetic savior, and look to him as a model for trusting God through our pain and suffering. The book of Job also tells us about something about how the church should respond to those who are suffering. For all of the things that are frustrating about Job's friends, they get at least one thing right. They show up. As brothers and sisters in Christ, our baseline desire should be to walk alongside those who are in pain. The empathy and compassion that Job's friends display when they first arrive should serve as an example for us. When we see our brothers and sisters in pain and suffering, our hearts should be compelled to move us toward them, to sit silently with them, to cry with them, to hurt with them, to listen to them. We don't have to have all the answers in those moments. In fact, the reality is that we can't have all the answers in that moment. That's another thing that the book of Job shows us. But we can and should be available and present in the midst of the suffering of our brothers and sisters. One last thought about suffering, and this is about suffering and Christianity in general. For many people throughout history, the presence of pain and suffering in the world has been a roadblock to belief in God and faith in Jesus. Overcoming the question of how can a loving God allow all this hurt in the world seems insurmountable to some people. I would suggest that the infinite, all-knowing wisdom of God and personal suffering of Jesus is the only way that the reality of suffering makes sense in the world. If there is no God, then suffering is completely random. It has no purpose. It has no end. It has no limit. And it only serves to make life more difficult for human beings. On the flip side, if God is real and Jesus suffered while here on earth as described in the Bible, then suffering isn't random. It isn't meaningless. It has purpose or can be used for a purpose. There's hope in the midst of it, help available from one who's experienced it like us and a future where it will no longer exist. Without God, without Jesus, as portrayed in the Bible, none of those things are possible. 
So while some people have looked at the presence of suffering and grief in the world and said, I don't think it's possible for God to be real in the face of this, I think faith in Jesus Christ makes it possible to look at suffering and pain in the world and say, I don't know how any of this is possible without him. I don't know how it's possible to walk through this. I don't know how it's possible to help others in the midst of pain without a Savior who has suffered alongside us, without a God who puts limits on the beginning and the end point of suffering and its existence in the world. I want to give one final encouragement, and that's this. If you find yourself right now in a place of of experiencing pain and hurt and suffering, I want to encourage you to reach out. If you're in a small group, I want to encourage you to speak to the people in your small group, to be vulnerable and open with them so that they can walk alongside you. If you're not in a small group, here's an encouragement to get in one and walk along faithful brothers and sisters who would love nothing more than to support and encourage you in the midst of life's joys and trials. But you can also do something else. Whether you're in a small group or not, if you're experiencing struggle and trial in your life right now, I want to encourage you to reach out to someone on our staff. We'd love to talk with you. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to listen to you. We would love to be able to support you and encourage you in whatever way is possible. As always, for more on the book of Job, you can check out thebibleinitiative.com. There's a video there from Join the Bible Project that provides some additional context to the book of Job. It's directly on our website and does a great job of providing some insight into the large framework of the book. You can also uh, see the other resources that are available on the site. We're praying that your reading in the book of Job this week is fruitful. Is fruitful.